Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? Is NYU a scientist? They, I felt felt right. I was so and I just happy. thought, well, I had figured it, out. it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and this week's episode is about fitting in. What does it mean to feel like you belong in science? Both of our storytellers today are contemplating that question. Our first story is from Heather Galindo. It was recorded at one of our livestream shows in Seattle in February 2022. The theme that night was Revelations. Thank you, people and barnacles who are present. For me, the study of marine science has really been as much about the community I was a part of as it has been about the study of the ocean itself. So when it came time for me to go to college, I was actually feeling pretty confident about being able to do the academic part of college. I was a lot less confident about fitting in socially. Most of my family hadn't gone to college, and I didn't totally know what to expect, and the few members that had had not gone after a science degree. So I showed up in college, and I went to a huge university, but luckily our oceanography program was really small. There was about 100 undergrads, and we all got to know each other. Our professors knew us by our first names, and I found that community I was looking for. We studied together, we laughed together, we hung out together. And so my first year of college actually went pretty smoothly. But it became clear that that wasn't going to be enough to get me into my science career. I couldn't just take my classes and do well. So when I was a sophomore, I emailed a professor that I had had and asked him if he knew of any lab helpers that were needed by any of the professors. And one of the professors, Dr. A, and her grad student responded. And so I went to meet with them. And this was really my first time in my life outside of a classroom talking to a scientist. Like this, I felt so intimidated and I really didn't know what to say. And so I met with them and they were both wonderful. Dr. A was this very down to earth woman. She wore t-shirts and jeans and every once in a while, just hints of her warm Texan accent would come out and it made me feel a lot more at ease. So we talked and they said, you know, we know you don't have any experience, but why don't you come on a trial basis and, and we'll see how this goes. So my first task was to filter seawater. 
Dr. A met with me and being the good student I was, I probably took like five pages of notes about how to filter seawater. And then I went off to class and I came back and I, it was time to do it on my own. And this was my big break. This was, I was going to science in a real lab. <laughs> and so I set everything up and I'm so excited and I poured the seawater in the top and nothing happened. It, it sat there and I thought, okay, like I can't be a perfectionist. I need to learn the steps. I took everything apart. I did it again and still nothing happened. And at this point, time is running out. I'm like 45 minutes into this process and I need to leave soon. So I was really embarrassed and frustrated and I thought, I can't even filter freaking seawater. Like how am I gonna succeed as a scientist? <laughs> But I didn't have time to deal with that. I had to clean everything up and leave Dr. A a note and tell her what happened. And um, the note that I left her was pretty simple. It said something like, Dear Dr. A, I'm so sorry. I couldn't filter the seawater. I followed your instructions. It, it just didn't work. I'm so sorry. I'll come back tomorrow. Sincerely, Heather. Now, what I realized later was that I hadn't totally cleaned up all the seawater. So when I left my note on the counter, some of the seawater soaked into it. And it gave it the sort of tear-stained appearance. So that when Dr. A came in the next day, what she read was this. Dear Dr. A, I'm so sorry I couldn't filter the seawater. So when I come in, I'm embarrassed because I couldn't have completed like the simplest task they could ask me to do. And she is slightly horrified that I had some sort of nervous breakdown over <laughs> failing at filtering the seawater. This is how my career in science began. Um, but in her warm, empathetic, encouraging way, we talked it out. We realized what had happened. And they asked me to stay. And over the next several months and years, I, I grew as a scientist and my techniques got better and I became more comfortable. But as that development was happening, I was learning something else. And that was that being a scientist meant being part of a particular professional culture. And this is something that I didn't understand. So I started to observe everyone in this very sort of social science way and notice the things they had in common. And these were things I couldn't relate to that I didn't do. They all listened to NPR, like all of the time. <laughs> they all watched documentaries. They read science papers at home on the weekends. And, and, and I went home and listened to Madonna and watched reruns of Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> and I was incredibly proud of who I was and where I came from, but I, I wasn't sure how I was gonna fit into this mold. And so, I would like do these amazing things in the lab. And then when I had to approach someone, I would say really embarrassing things. So I would go to Dr. A's office and she'd be working. Um, and so instead of saying something normal, like, excuse me, hello, I would say, I don't mean to alarm you, but this, yeah, it works. It got her attention. Uh, but, you know, not sort of the smoothest transition. And so... You know, these things kept happening where my science development was on a totally different trajectory than my self-confidence. When I graduated, Dr. A was really wonderful, and she offered me a full-time research position while I figured out if I wanted to go to grad school. Um, I gladly accepted, and when this happened, I thought, okay, I need to start doing things to fit in. So I chose two things. 
One was to listen to NPR. That seemed like a prerequisite. And two, I started biking to work. Now, I hate biking, but this was a thing. And this is what my fellow scientists did. And so I would bike to work in the morning, and I would take off my shirt and my bike pants that were sweaty, and I would put them outside on my bike and all my other clothes. I'd sneak into my bag, and I'd go about my day. And then I'd get home at night and put everything in the laundry. Pretty straightforward. And then one night I got home, and I'm unpacking my bag, and I realized that something in my bag was missing. And that something was my underwear. <laughs> now, at that moment, my flowery, gold, shimmery underwear were out in the world on their own without me. And I felt deeply betrayed by them. But I also felt like I had to find them, like now. So I drove to my lab. I searched everywhere. They were gone. And actually, to this day, I have never found them. So I go home and I go to work the next morning and I just decide to pretend it's nothing happened, right? What are the chances my colleagues are going to mention underwear randomly? Um, so I just went through my day and, and at the end of the day, Dr. A had now known me for five years and she came up to me and she said, are you okay, Heather? And I just looked at her and in my head, I'm thinking, can I tell her? Should I tell her? That's weird, right? Can I tell her? I, I don't know what to do. And so I just blurted out, I lost my underwear at work yesterday. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my, what did I do? Like, what? no one has mentioned underwear. And so I just kind of froze and waited for her response. And then she looked at me, and she smiled, and she said, I thought those were yours. <laughs> so... In that moment, I felt two things. One, horrified that although I couldn't find my underwear, other people apparently had, <laughs> and assumed they were mine. But I also felt an enormous sense of relief because I had spent so much time worrying about fitting in, and the worst had happened. I had left my underwear for all of my colleagues to see, and it was okay. So at that moment, as I looked ahead at my career, rather than worrying about whether I would ever fit in, I had this new confidence that no matter what, I could, in fact, make it in science. That was Heather Galindo. Heather has long combined her loves for marine science and storytelling by earning college degrees in both oceanography and English literature, plus working in a science communication nonprofit organization for five years. While earning her PhD at Stanford University's Hopkins Marine Station, she also spent a lot of time in the field talking to barnacles. As an associate teaching professor in STEM at the University of Washington Bothell, she currently teaches courses in marine biology, evolution, environmental science, and scientific writing. All right, before we continue with today's episode, once again, I want to remind everyone that the Proton Prom, Story Collider's annual fundraiser, is coming up on May 11th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. We're going to have drinks and hors d'oeuvres and ice cream sandwiches and amazing guests, including comedian Aparna Nanshirla, primatologist and comedian Natalia Reagan, journalist Nicholas St. Fleur, and famed mathematician Ken Ono. It's going to be incredible. 
Come on out and join us in your science prom finest. I, for one, will be wearing my atom tie. Get your tickets now at storycollider.org slash protonprom2022. If you can't make it to Brooklyn for the big night, we're also going to sell virtual tickets starting on May 15th. And in the meantime, you can check out our other upcoming shows at storycollider.org slash shows, where we have information about all of our upcoming shows in places like New York, D.C., St. Louis, L.A., Chicago, and Toronto. We're also continuing to offer online storytelling workshops for individuals as well as private groups. You can find out more about that at storycollider.org education. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the story collider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. In fact, this month, if you become a Patreon supporter, you can get a discounted ticket to the Proton Prom. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Our second story today is from Rob Ulrich. It was recorded at our live stream show in Los Angeles in November 2021. The theme that night was difficult decisions. All right, so I'm from Virginia, uh, raised by religious parents, and I went to this small, tiny Catholic school. Um, and when I say small, I mean that there were only about 20 other people in my, uh, graduating class of eighth grade. Uh, and even then I was still very jealous of all of the kids who grew up in the suburbs with cul-de-sacs and neighbors, uh, cause they could actually hang out with other kids outside of school. Um, me and my siblings, we ended up growing up in the woods uh pretty isolated from everybody else outside of school the summers were pretty brutal um we would just wake up and put on our uniforms before going to school come home eat some of mom's like chicken and rice or pho and then go to sleep and do it all over again the next day and so by the time it was time to apply for college i really wanted something different i decided to go as far away as i could without having to pay out-of-state tuition, and so that landed me at Virginia Tech. Um, and Virginia Tech is this massive university with over 30,000 students and a freshman class of like six, five or 6,000. And when I was going to college, I really went with this conscious mantra of trying to figure out what wasn't feeling right growing up. And I always was telling myself, try everything once. If I don't like it, don't do it again. And so my first semester, I tried, I tried everything under the sun. And that led me to one, it's like my deep, dark secret is that I joined a fraternity. And I was that person at the door of house parties being like, who do you know here? Um, <laughs> and like trying to do the mental math of like, oh, this, there. How many girls do you have with you? Um, the ratio's got to be right. Um, but none of this ever felt 
like me. Nothing I ever tried felt like me. I it always felt like I was just putting on different roles or like acting each and every day with every new thing that I tried. And eventually I figured out that I was right. Um, and my second semester, I started coming out as gay. And as I started becoming more acquainted with being gay, I really wanted to just meet more gay people. Uh, and so I downloaded this app called Grinder, which is this hookup dating app um, for gay people. And as I was scrolling through the different profiles, just seeing who was around, uh, this tagline kept appearing on people's profiles. Uh, no fats, no femmes, no Asians. Um, and that was really hard. Um, this new, very sensitive to me at the time, identity, being gay, uh, and this community that I was trying to breach into, um, didn't want me. Uh, and this was, this was like, it was a learning moment, I guess, for me. It was, it was very challenging and where I learned like that our identities aren't monoliths. We don't get to go into our closets every day and choose what we want to be. And that's how we navigate the world that day. It was the first time that for me as someone who's like mixed, like Asian and white, um, that parts of myself had been challenged. Like, could I be Asian and gay? Um, and so I didn't really know what to do with this information at the time. And so I did the only thing that I thought I was good at and just threw myself into school, hung out with my friends. And fortunately, one of the things I threw myself into was undergraduate research. And here I was working under a PhD student and like this geochemistry lab studying lobsters. And here I felt, I felt smart. I felt confident. They even gave me my own office with a desk and a fridge and a microwave. Uh, the other grad students were not happy that a little undergrad had an office. Uh, <laughs> and one day me and this student were catching up uh, in the lab before getting down to work. Uh, and if you don't know, Virginia Tech is in Blacksburg, which is in Southwest Virginia, where the demographics are 93% white. And so I was complaining, of course, about the pho I just been served the other day at the only spot in town. I was like, why are there crispy onions on it? Why are there red onions in it? I was like, none of this makes sense. Um, and so the PhD student ends up bringing up his boyfriend. Um who also happened to be Vietnamese. And I just, I had a mental, like, I don't know, there was something going on in my head. I was just like, oh my God, he's gay. Uh, obviously not saying it to him. And then not only was he gay, but like he was dating an Asian person. And I think the student could tell that there was something going on behind my eyes. And he was like, oh, actually, there's a number of queer students in this grad department. Um, and that was really surprising for me to hear because I double majored in chemistry and geosciences and in not one, but both majors, I did not know of a single other out student. Um, 
And so this made me feel like I was going in the right direction. I felt like science was this place where I could actually feel welcome. It was a place where I didn't feel just safe or comfortable, but I felt embraced. And so I had the confidence now to like come out to my advisor and get some advice as advisors do. Um, I, she was very supportive about my being gay and very receptive to my concerns about being gay and Asian in our little town. And she suggested to me, why don't you apply to grad school? You can do anything you want and you can go anywhere. Um, and I think about those words every day. And so I did. I applied. I applied to cities all over the country, hoping that I would be able to go somewhere that was a bit more gay. Uh, <laughs> and where I ended up deciding to choose was UCLA, which is in Los Angeles, California. Um, because I had had this, I had this romanticized view of a huge diverse city um and it seemed like from the media and tv and shows like all the parades and like the parties and like the people seem to be in los angeles california um and so i moved here and when i got here i realized that i didn't know anybody else except maybe a cousin that i had um and my anxiety made it really hard for me to talk to people I didn't know. And so in the first few months, I lost 20 pounds. I felt isolated and I felt homesick. And that's when I just realized, like, the feeling of not belonging, the feeling of not feeling like you fit in doesn't stop with, like, what school you go to or where, what city you move to. Um and so I was like, okay, I'm an adult. I'm going to be proactive about this. I'm going to put myself out there. So I tried things like Bumble Friends, and I really wonder if that works for anybody. Um, and I also joined the like gay sports leagues, um, which is actually how I met my current roommate. Uh, so it kind of worked. But it got really exhausting having to like commute all over this massive, sprawled-out city just to meet some friends. Because I literally moved to Los Angeles, this huge, diverse, queer city, um, to just to simply be around more people like me. And so I was just like, why am I having to try so hard? Um... And this led me to eventually go to the UCLA Campus Resource Center's uh, resource fair, as they do. And it was called Cookies and Queers. Very cute name. <laughs> and I was checking in. I was like, okay, this is arguably the gayest school in the gayest city in the country. There has to be something for queer people in science. And as I walked into the room... I stared down the lines of tables with all the students and their little tabletop decor. And I quickly realized that there wasn't. And so I stormed all the way to the end of that room where they were handing out the cookies. I grabbed twice my share and I stormed out. I was upset, right? Like, <laughs> like had I made a mistake moving here and coming here? 
but also in that moment was when I was finally decided like if there's not something here for me why don't I make it and so the next day I reached out to the student resource center expressed my concerns and they are wonderful people they were great and they immediately connected me to three other students who had expressed the same concerns and I started meeting up with these other students we were started with once a week just meeting up chatting and we hammered out a plan to start to start something and that's how we made queer and trans in stem and in less than a year we went from just us four to having over 300 people around campus from <laughs> um, from undergrads grad students postdoctoral researchers staff and faculty um and we did we just did things together we had coffee and tea socials we had game nights we had guided nature walks on the uc reserves we worked with the telescope we worked with the astronomy club to have telescope shows and we even had little research symposia of just us just to like share and talk about science and it felt so good that this space resonated with so many people um and even when people didn't show up to meetings or come to events they they reached out and were like hey i know i don't come around but just knowing that that space is there just knowing that y'all exist, it means the world. And it's because just having a space to fall back on, a community to uplift you, having that is so invaluable. It was finally a space where people didn't have to act or play. We could just be ourselves. And it was just a home for people. Thank you. That was Rob Ulrich. Rob is a scientist at UCLA who studies how living things make their hard parts, systoliths, coral, shells, etc. Rob is also the associate director of the Reclaiming STEM Institute, co-founder of Queer and Trans in STEM, a writing consultant, and a writer. Further research and advocacy, Rob currently holds fellowships with the National Science Foundation and the Center for Diverse Leadership in Science, and they've been invited to speak on popular podcasts including Ologies, Talk Nerdy, ExoLore, and at meetings for the American Geophysical Union, the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society, the Geologic Society of America, the California Academy of Sciences, and the New York Academy of Sciences. I have to say, before we wrap up, I highly recommend checking out our website to see photos of the amazing shirt that Rob wore when they told the story on our LA stage. Check out storyclider.org to find transcripts and photos from all of our stories, as always. The Storyclider is so grateful to Heather and Rob for sharing their stories with us. Storyclider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of The Story Collider, with help from Managing Producer Misha Gajewski, Education Director Nissa Greenberg, and Senior Podcast Editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and Marketing Manager Nikisha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible.
The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Emmy Okikawa and Kent Whipple, and by Leslie Burnson and Brian Kett, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost. Next week, Misha Gajewski will be back bringing you stories on the theme of DNA just in time for Mother's Day. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.